I'm Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Growing up, improv scared the pants off me. I dreaded the moments where I had to think off the cuff or make up a scene in front of people around me. It was probably my least favorite part of the drama curriculum that I adored throughout my four years of high school. Improvisational theater, or improv, is a form of live theater where everything is made up in the moment, including the characters, the plot, the dialogue, and it's often derived from a single constraint, like a short scene description, or a prop, or even just a single word. But that fear that lived inside of me 20 years ago has quieted, as I've grown up and I've experienced scarier things than looking goofy on stage. Improv now excites me from the perspective that it's a safe space to practice vulnerability and trust in a community of like-minded people. The shared experience of trying and succeeding or trying and failing and then picking myself back up again is crucial to confidence building and to personal growth. If you've never experienced improv, I encourage you to give it a shot. You'll learn a lot about yourself. Recently, I had the opportunity to participate in an improv workshop with my interdisciplinary innovation students. And it was facilitated by Kevin Frank, who was the former artistic director of the Second City Toronto's Training Centre, who is also a notable Canadian actor, teacher, and creative artist. In this workshop, he led our students through a series of exercises that were designed to improve their listening and their communication skills. One of the most memorable games he had us play was called Imaginary Birthday Party, and it was conducted in teams of three. The way it worked was this. It was someone on the team's birthday, and they were asked to describe their ideal party. The other two members of the team had to provide feedback about the ideas given. However, they must always have started their feedback with the word no. It was now on to the next person on the team, whose birthday it now was, and they were asked to describe their ideal party. The other two members of the team had to provide feedback about the ideas given. However, they must always start their feedback with with the words, yes, but. And now it was the final person's birthday on the team, and they were asked to describe their ideal party. The other two members of the team had to provide their feedback about the ideas given. However, they must always start their feedback with the words, yes, and. I caught on quickly to the pattern that would emerge as the game went on. When prompted to reflect, students described the first no round as coming up against feelings of defeat and lacking motivation to continue contributing ideas, knowing that they would all be shot down. Students describe the second yes but round as not as defeating as the first, but still challenging as every suggestion they made was accepted, but then there was an excuse attached to why the idea couldn't be fulfilled. And lastly, students describe the final yes and round as containing a whole different energy. 
Ideas were both accepted, yes, and actively built upon, and, the result of which was a variety of new ideas that were not explored in earlier rounds. The moral of the story is this. Yes and is as helpful a framework in improv as it is in everyday life. By yes anding the conversations we have with others every day, we show them that we're listening and that we care by accepting and building on what was said. And the greatest lesson for me came when Kevin explained that even if we don't agree with someone else's idea, we can still use this framework of accepting and building. Yes allows them to feel heard. While we can use the connector and to ask, for example, if they've considered this option or they've considered that scenario, for example. Coming back to my earliest experiences with improv, in this episode, you will meet Tim Miller, otherwise known as Mr. Miller, who was my beloved high school drama teacher. Tim opened my eyes to the world of improv and encouraged my first attempts at the practice. He was a transformative force in my life, both witnessing his take on creative living, dabbling in a bit of this and a bit of that, as well as from his passion and his efforts and his joy that he brought into the classroom. I learned so much as his student, the lessons learned on stage, as well as the lessons learned backstage through observing Mr. Miller's approach to life. I've sent Tim Christmas cards for years, and I accidentally stumbled on a message he sent me this year through social media, and it was a platform I rarely use, I just happened to check it, and I saw his message. He and I got back in touch after more than a decade, and while a lot has changed, once we got talking, it was as though nothing had changed. When we hopped on this call, he was a little beardier than I remember him, but otherwise he was exactly the same joyful, creative, and unafraid of showing his students vulnerability, with a wicked sense of humor and a desire to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. I am so grateful for all that he has done for me and the belief that he has had in me in my formative years. Let's get to this very special conversation that's been 20 years in the making. Hi, Tim. Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good, thank you. This is uh, this is 20 years plus in the making. Yes. Yeah. It would have been 20 years this just this past December. So September. I'm a teacher. I should know it starts in September. <laughs> yeah. It's been it's been a while. I'm so excited to to chat with you today mm. and pick your brain about the topic of listening and creativity. So I think the very first place that is logical to start mm -hmm. is who is Tim Miller in a nutshell. Oh, it's like I have to do some sort of Tinder profile or something, right? Um, yeah, you know what? I, I I don't like talking about myself. I'm not, and I'm not, it's not some sort of false humility. I'm just really uncomfortable with blowing my own horn. And I know it's not necessarily blowing my own horn, but, um, you know, we're all complicated people. I'm a little bit of everything. You know, I'm, I'm teaching a course on Indigenous studies right now, and one of the things I ask it to do is to examine uh, they get us to do these things called identity charts and um, to reflect on the labels you give yourself and the labels that you give others or so that others give you. Um, and then we will then reflect on the indigenous and how labels affect them. So I remember doing an identity chart for that, you know what, I, like I'm a husband, I'm a father, uh, you know, I'm a brother, 
Um, you know, I'm the village idiot, but I guess I'm smart-ish too, because I'm a teacher, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I'm sure you'll find people say otherwise. You know, I'm I'm a Canadian, but I'm also very proud of my, you know, Scots, Irish, and English heritage. You know, I'm a I'm a white cisgendered Christian male. Um, you know, but uh and sometimes I'm, 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 I don't want to say I'm ashamed of that, but I know I find that a little bit awkward sometimes uh, because I know that unfortunately white cisgender Christian males are on the top of the heap and we don't necessarily deserve to be there. And if anything, we've caused a lot of problems around the world. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not someone who is without prejudice. I don't think anybody is, which is sometimes a bit of a hard pill to swallow. Um, but I also am really trying to uh, move myself from being an ally to the, you know, the BIPOC, the LGBTQ, the marginalized elements of society, trying to move myself from a, an ally to what they're calling a co-conspirator. So it's not just, you know, no longer just cheering from the sideline and saying, you know, good job, but, you know, trying to get there and get your hands dirty, um, you know, a person of faith. And, and yet, you know, doubt is, is crucial to faith. So there's that, too. Um, I hate puzzles, but I love editing film, which is very much a puzzle. Um, you know, I, I'm a teacher, but I'm also, a, I love, I love to learn. Um, you know, I'm an actor, I'm an art artist, you know, I like, I, I do music, I write music, I'm, I, I like to act, I like to create. So I guess it's creative, is that the term, the cool term now? Um, you know, when it comes to music, I'm a jack of all trades, master of nothing. I play a lot of really dumb instruments, not very well, but there's a bunch of them. You like bagpipes and didgeridoo and then your typical sort of, you know, guitar, piano kind of stuff. I'm just, I, 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 I've never been any one particular thing, which I know some people like to be able to assign you a simple label, um, but I'm not. And sometimes I find that frustrating and, and sometimes I take pride in that. Incredible. Yeah, there you go. Incredible. And I've heard you play the didgeridoo. It's yeah, pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is a very funky little instrument. Yeah. <laughs> well, we met 21 years ago, 20 yeah. years ago, 21 20, years ago. 20, 20. Yeah, 2001. And it was the, I believe, very first drama class class you ever taught, ever. Yeah, you said, not and- just my first year of teaching, literally the very first class, period one, the first wow. day of school. Yeah. So tell me what it's been like teaching drama at the high school level for the last 20 plus years. What's that uh-huh. been like? The thing that's great about drama um, and I love about drama, the arts in general is, you know, I explain to kids at the start because you, you get you get the kids that are there for marks and want their marks and always want to know what their mark is. And then you get kids on the other end of the, you know, the spectrum. You know, I tell them from the start, except the fact that one plus one never equals two in the arts. And um, that's one of the things I love, you know, I'm in, not that I'm lazy. Um, I've done very similar assignments over the last 20 years and I've, I've never seen a performance repeated. They're always different. So that's a great thing. Um, you know, I, I, I don't teach math. I don't understand math, um, but I don't know what it would be like to teach something where you always have to end up with the same answer or it's wrong. And when it comes to doctors and, you know, engineers and people who need to use that, printers, um, I'm glad that they... This much math, I promise. Yeah, this but much no, math. you have to get all the angles and everything has to fit properly. I'm glad that people can do the exactness. But I think the thing I really love about the arts and drama in general is just it's never the same twice. Um, which is also why I love improv, because it's never the same ever. Um I think, you know, teaching drama, it's, it's a, 
it's a place where kids can come and be themselves more so than, um, you know, traditionally academic course, which is wonderful in some ways. It also can be very scary. Um, sometimes I've had to deal with situations in, in a class that I don't think you'd ever deal with in, in an academic course, just, you know, kids losing their, their heads, you know, and, and, and breaking down and, um, you know, people coming very, very real when you're not sitting in rows and regimented, be quiet and you're, you're active and expressing yourself. It just, things can happen. Um, you know, that that can be a real challenge. And there's also been really powerful, beautiful moments of, of kids, you know, making connections of kids breaking through, you know, sometimes they're instantaneous moments. Sometimes, you know, I have to look at them over four years. Like I remember this one kid, um, she, uh, I can't remember name, of course, she, the first three weeks of drama class, grade nine, she basically just sort of stared at her feet and hardly said a word. And in grade 12, she was one of the co-stars of our main stage public performance. So it's, 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 it's very rewarding to see that. Um, people ask me like, what are kids like nowadays? And I say, kids are kids are kids. I'm, I can look at my life in high school and I can make direct connections to what they're going through now. I mean, the outside world's different, you know, yet <laughs> connected to, us in our first time meeting together, uh, my very first, I guess, week of teaching is in like five days. It would have been the next week, technically speaking, was 9-11. So <laughs> I was fresh out of teacher's college, fresh into a room, and then 9-11 happened. Um, you know, I, I was working a different job when Columbine happened, so I wasn't in school then. I mean, we've had, you know, invasions in Iraq. Currently, we've got the thing going on in the Ukraine. Um the outside world changes, and I definitely think that affects people and students and their mindset and how they deal with things. But kids are kids are kids, you know, puberty, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Um, you know, I'm, I'm having a really bad day today, mental health, uh, it, it, it's struggling with their identity, be it sexual or just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. You know, my mom and dad want me to be a doctor, but I want to be an artist or all this kind of stuff. Kids, it, it, to me, kids have not changed. Um, but when you're working in drama, it's, it's just a really, you get really get, to, you really get, can get to know kids, I think more so in an arts course. Um, and this isn't to say you can't in, in like history or science or something like that. I mean, I've taught history a bunch of times, um, but I just think the relationship in drama is, is, is very, very different. And I, and I love it. I love that dynamic. Yeah. And my, so my husband is a, um, he teaches typically grade seven and eight. And it's oh, funny. Oh. He... <laughs> you know what? I, I couldn't teach little kids because I could barely handle my own and I love them. Um, I love high school kids. Um, but the one I could never, like, I would just quit is, is middle school. I just can't even imagine it. So and praise your husband. It's so funny because I feel like grade seven and eight in particular, the, that middle school age, either you love it and that's all you want to teach or you are terrified of it. I found yeah. that, that that's kind of the polarization of, of most yeah. teachers. Well, I would say any of the three, you know, uh, primary, middle and high school, I, you know, you're called to teach what you teach. My wife would never want to teach high school kids. My daughter doesn't want to teach high school kids. Neither of them want to teach in middle school. But then, I mean, obviously your husband, I've worked with a bunch of people, you know, at one the feeder schools that come into Fletcher's specifically, um, and they, they love their jobs. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, um, he, he says the same thing about his, the students that he's seen over the last 15 years in his career is that kids are kids are kids. You're going to have that. The kids are still nice. They're still the very nice kids who are helpful and who are always willing to lend a hand. There are always the kids who are the troublemakers. There's always, there's that same dynamic in, in, uh, kind of any class that comes through in the last however many years of his career. But Mm -hmm. no, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I, I, absolutely commend you uh, for, for, well, you were obviously a very um, transformative teacher for me. Thank you. But I mean, the, the drama, the world of drama just, I think, is a whole different dynamic, as you've mentioned, in terms of, of teaching and learning, because it is so vulnerable and raw, and it requires trust that in, mm. in other courses, perhaps, um, isn't as much of a foundational need as it is in the, dra- right. the, the dramatic arts. Yeah. Yeah. So specifically what I'm hoping we can really dive into here is your your experience and your love of improvisational theater. Um, and so can you just tell us a little bit more about the work that you've done uh, in in improv uh, and kind of what what that's looked like? And, and maybe we'll then kind of uh, dive into listening in the right. context of improv. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always loved acting, um, you know, from youngster before I knew what acting was, I was like the class clown. I like to do stuff, you know, church plays and, you know, little scenes and that. And, and then I discovered improv. Um, I remember when I was doing uh, uh, a school play, one of our director teachers asked us, you know, just put down your script. And, and now I just want you guys to interact like you're this person and, you know, have a conversation, deal with, here's a problem, deal with it. And I didn't realize it was improv at the time, but I, I loved it. I loved the, the, the fear of it, like not knowing what's going to happen next, but I also love the freedom of it. Um, I didn't have to learn lines. I mean, maybe there's an element of improv because I'm lazy. <laughs> I don't want to learn my lines. Um, but, uh, you know, it, by the time I became a teacher, um, you know, I, I once I when I started teaching, um, I'm when I sorry when I was doing my practicum, my you know learning to be a teacher, I uh, whose line is in anyway um, that improv show was just becoming quite popular, and I just adored it. And so when I had to teach a, a, a subject um, for drama in my my placement, um, I asked if I could do improv, and I started doing a little bit of research. I had a friend who had done a Second City course, and I you know I fucked her brain for ideas and sort of got some basic foundational stuff. And I taught, you know, I taught the course. It was, you know, I taught sort of the section of the course. It was like about two weeks or so. And I really enjoyed it. And then um, I, you know, I got my first job. I was at Heart Lake and did some improv in the classes. And I started an improv club and just fell more and more in love with it. Um, but at that point, it was more of just uh, uh, not an extra, well, definitely an extracurricular thing, but within the context of a course, it was just a section, you know, you do tableau, you do, you know, mine, you do scene work, you do, you know, ancient theater, all this kind of stuff. It was just a, a, an element. But then when I got to Fletcher's, a couple of years into Fletcher's, um, you know, there was an opportunity to create an improv course. There's an improv, like improv exists. It wasn't just me making it up ironically um it actually existed and so I wanted to do it and I but then I knew you know a two-week section and a bunch of after-school sessions wouldn't suffice to teach a whole course so I really dove into it um I do remember um when I was at Heart Lake a second city traveling troupe I don't know if you ever saw them you might have seen them 
we did a thing at second you, yeah second. yeah sorry yeah you yeah. did a thing with them yes that it was, was so cool that's in my notes um but that was a that was a sort of a when I was doing extracurricular a little bit in class working with second city, I made a connection with the person who brought it to, to heart Lake um, and then started the snowball rolling where we actually, our class got to perform on the second city stage. Mm. What had never been done to that point. I don't know if it's been done since um, it, it, it upped my excitement and interest uh, not just as a, as a thing to do just in the moment and, but really began to examine it. Then fast forward a little bit and then um, offered an uh, opportunity to teach it as a full, like a whole course. Um, and then I really de- dove into it. And um, I mean, I guess like you in printing, like you had an interest in it, there was whatever. And it's it's when you start to dive into the minutiae, either you're like, oh, really? Or you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And this is what it became for me. The more and more I researched it and the more and more I began to examine it, I realized that in some ways it's much, much more complicated than traditional acting. Um, but by the same token, it is also very, very simple in its context. You know, a strong foundation allows for amazing things to happen. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, I can get into it as part of our description or, or talk later about, you know, communication and listening and so on and so forth. Um Improv for me, the, the the rules of improv. There's two or three foundational rules are an incredible um, philosophy for life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just touch on them now. They they aren't necessarily connected to listening specifically, but they are really important. Um, one of them is uh, everybody else on stage is more important than you. Make others look good. You look good. Um, yes, and which is the idea that accept what's happening on stage then build on it, whether it's good or bad, you know, accept what's happening and then just go with it. And the last one is follow the fear, which is probably my favorite one. Mm-hmm. I even have a, I even have a tattoo, a, a Chinese or Mandarin tattoo, which loosely translated step forward with courage. Um, so it's, it, it's really become an important part of my life um, just as a philosophy, a way of thinking, a way of examining how I do things, you know, as a teacher, as a human, um, they're just wonderful ways to look at it. And then, like I said, as I got more and more into it, more minutia, more stuff and makes you realize that when you see these people doing it on stage and when you really know what it's all about, it blows your mind. Just like, you know, when I pick up a book and I open up, you know, it looks nice, whatever, cool, nice font. But when you do, it's like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Look what they've done here. You know, like the the offset pages that aren't all the same. They don't follow, they don't, you know, they're they are cut evenly. And just the beauty of that and the smell of the book, like for Rough you. edges. Right? There we go, is what I was going to say. Like the <laughs> furniture. Sorry, live edge, live edge furniture. Um, but that's, that's what it's become for me. It's become like a central focus for me, just, just as I teach how I think, how I try to move forward is just a really wonderful way to be, I guess, for lack of a better description. And I know for me, the other thing that really blew my mind, um, and it was scary the very first time I taught it, was moving from short form improv, which is what we know whose line is in any way, like two, three minute scenes, and it's over. Um, the goal of the course became a 25 minute nonstop improv based on a word that a kid would pull out of a hat. Wow. Yeah. And they do it blew my mind continues to blow my mind 
I was going to say, this is me on a, a typical lecture day. I just and there you go. my topic. Yeah. I got three hours. Go. Go. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, which you can do by yourself. But when you've got to work with others and the many balls are going around, it's 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 a very, not to take anything away from you being able to talk out of your ass for three hours. <laughs> Hopefully there's a little bit of planning. <laughs> yeah. <in there>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, it's really amazing. And so that's been a very rewarding thing for me is, is improv in general. Yeah. Got a real passion for it now. Incredible. And I love the juxtaposition, how deeply complex it is, if you really understand, like know what is going on and know what goes into this. But at the same time, it's so simple. And the mm -hmm. and it's that to me, I love the marrying of those two radically different ideas that and, and I think, yeah, I think improv is, is such an incredible space to mm. create something that you've never seen before. Yeah, and may never see again, which is kind of the good thing and the bad thing about it. You know, yes. rarely is it ever, you know, sometimes improvs are turned into, like I remember um, I'm young enough that um, I actually saw Mike Myers as an actor in Second City, Toronto, mm. performing as this long haired sort of stone dudes from Scarborough sitting around the campfire after school, you know, hey. And that would have come from an improv, became a scene and then turned into Wayne as in Wayne's world. Wow. So it can do that, but by the same token, mostly it's just gone and done, which is kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to, uh, as you've alluded to, dive into this world of kind of communication mm -hmm. and listening specifically yeah. in the art of improv. So what, what happens when listening maybe doesn't happen in improv and can also just what what does that what does listening look like and and how does it react and how does that all work when it comes yeah. to improv um in spite of the fact that i mentioned there's three foundational rules and depending on who you talk to those may or may not change some people say there's just one some people whatever may have a different one in there these are just mine um it, it i guess it goes it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that if there's no listening, none of it happens anyways. Um, you know, when you're, and this isn't to knock people who work with scripts, but, you know, you don't really have to be paying attention, you know, until they, they say your keyword or the key move and you can click in. That's not the way you should be acting anyways. You always need to be listening. But improv, it, it can't work. Like it's it's dead if, if there is no listening. It's that simple. Um because you are creating, because you're building on each thing, it's, you know, yes, and like I just said, if nothing's being said, if nothing's being put forward, if nothing's being, you know, thrown out in the universe, and you're not paying attention, then nothing will happen. I mean, I, I could go on for hours about it, but why? Because it just listening, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't work. It's that simple. So okay, the interview's done. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but in your experience, like, have you been in situations and whether you're watching students uh, kind of work with, like, do improv or it's you doing improv, are there any specific situations where you've just thought, yes, this is exactly how it should be done or this this isn't working because they're not listening? Like, can you think of any specific oh, yeah. instances? Well, it's – if you're not listening um, – once again, the minutia of everything here is um, there's a term called directing in improv. You're never supposed to direct, which means basically I have an idea of where the scene should go. I want it to go here. That's directing. You should never direct. 
because it may turn out that your idea is a heck of a lot better than mine. Um, and if I'm pushing mine and not paying attention to you, then it's not going to happen. It's like the same, like, I'm, I'm sure you've never had an argument with your husband, but I know once or twice my wife and I have talked <laughs> at heated, heated levels and we've all done it, whether it's with spouses or friends or whatever, you're thinking of what you're going to say to them and you're not listening <laughs> to them. And it may turn out that what you're about to say you know, the problem may be solved if you're just paying attention to them. I mean, it's, it crosses the lines of reality and, and, and improv as an art. You just, you have to listen. Um, you have to be paying attention because, um, you know, there could be a cue, there could be a, a wonderful new idea, a wonderful new environment that's created, uh, a wonderful new direction um, that can completely open things up. And if you're directing, if you're not paying attention, if you're, you're quashing people's ideas and it stops, um, and that generally is, is the fear of an improviser is not knowing what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And if you can live in that discomfort, you can usually do really well. Um, you know, uh, uh, Keegan, Michael Keegan, uh, Key and Peele. I don't know if you remember that true, the, that comedy team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mm -hmm. uh, saw an interview with him and he described improv as uh, jumping off a cliff with someone and putting together the parachute on the way down. Mm. And as terrifying as that is, if you don't do it, you know, you're going to end up hurt. Uh, not that you're going to do that in improv, but once again, it's, it's working together. It's listening to each other. It's trusting each other. It's, you know, being able to be comfort following your fear. You know, I know I shouldn't jump off a cliff, but let's do it anyway. See what happens. But listening is, is foundational. You just, you, yeah, I, I can't be any clearer. If you don't listen, it ain't going to happen. Right. And it, something you you picked up on there is is that fear element. Mm -hmm. And so is there a connection then between this idea of of not listening to someone else's seen thoughts in an argument, whatever it may be, and the fear that we have that like, what is that fear? What is that that missing link? I don't know if you have an answer. Well, I think there's, you know, in, in, in a scene um, doing improv, it's like, I don't know where this is going to go. But then what's the underlying fear under that? I, but I think I think just with regards to, like, because you're going to look stupid on stage. Hmm. I think that. But I think when you draw the connection to, to real life, there's a fear of being wrong. Hmm. There's a fear of being called out. Um, there's a fear of, you know, relationships being challenged, uh, whether it's, you know, intimate, romantic or professional or friendship. Um, you know, we, we, we like to be right all the time. We don't like to be proven wrong and heaven forbid they say something and I hear them show me something that I was wrong. Um, yeah, you know, the, the being on stage and performing, I, I think it's pretty simple. Like you want to entertain people, you want to do it well, you want to do it right. In in comedic improv, I mean, there's there's dramatic improv that that happens, but it's mostly comedic improv. If you're not getting the laugh, it's terrifying. You're so exposed up there. If the whole point is laughter and there's none, you know, you get scared and you freak out. So I think that's where a lot of the fear is. Um, not knowing if it's going to be funny, um, not knowing if you're going to be funny. But the ironic thing is, is, you know, a lot of improv teachers will tell you, don't try to be funny. Just, just be honest, just respond. And sometimes the honest response is a hell of a lot funnier than some sort of, you know, penis joke or, you know, it, you know, dropping in a, a swear word to get a cheap laugh. Um, you know, none of that stuff is, is really worth it. It's like, um, there's an expression playing to the top of your intelligence. 
you know, go for the the thought provoking statement, the thought provoking joke, and force your audience to think about it. It's a lot more satisfying. You know, when someone tells you a joke, you don't get it right away. And then suddenly it hits you like, oh, my God, that's so good. Rather than, oh, yeah, that's a funny joke. I got it right away. You know, I do this exercise with uh, my improv students. Um, I show them a bunch of uh, um, company logos, speaking of printing and graphic design, and all the cool things within them that they don't know are there. And then when they see them, it's like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Like the bear that's in the mountain on the Toblerone bar. There you go. Because it's made in a city in Switzerland called Bern, which is Swiss for bear. And they've never seen the bear before in their lives. They're like, what? What? So playing to the top of your intelligence can be scary sometimes because maybe you won't get the immediate laugh. Maybe you won't, you know, maybe in a conversation with someone anyways is forcing them to think more. And, and maybe there's a fear of forcing you to think more. They're not being so obvious, um, but you have to listen in order to make those connections. You have to listen in order to be able to find the answer, you know, to, to suddenly see the bear in the mountain, metaphorically speaking. Um, and then when you do, it's, it's very gratifying. And uh, yeah. And what does listening look like in improv? Like for you, if when you are thrown in to a scene, you are doing improv. What does listening, how do you listen? what does that yeah we're getting deep how how does that like do do you is uh body language and eye contact part of that it is yeah absolutely it's funny you just you just as soon as you mentioned that that one of the things that i i'm I'm, i realize is very difficult right now specifically with improv not so much with traditional acting scenes is the fact that i can't see my you know fellow performers mouths um there's a game that we do called simultaneous expert where um you have to speak in one voice. Someone will ask you a question. Like we do pick a ridiculous thing to be an expert, like peanut butter. Can you tell us why you love peanut butter? And so you and your partner have to speak at the the same same time. time. But if you can't see their lips, it's so difficult. I mean, you're forced to be hyper listening in the sense of picking up the nuances of where their vowels and consonants or wherever may go. And you try to guess what the word is. But the simple fact that you can't see their lips is is so challenging. And then in improv anyways, when we got your masks on, like I have to have my students perform regular drama. I have to have them wear uh, a lot of them wear like their their funky little customized, personalized fabricy masks but they suck up the sound. Like, it's like, you know, if you ever walk in your closet and speak into your clothes, it just, it just sucks the sound. I have to get them to wear the surgical masks, the more papery masks. It doesn't block the sound as much. And so we're finding um, a, like bad enough with traditional drama, but especially improv where you have to be listening and you have to hear what your partner's saying. If you can't hear it, like you're once again, you're really like you're trying, but now you are being forced to, hyper up your ears and your eyes. And and like you said, body language, facial expression, even though you're missing really two thirds of the face. um, I think that is definitely an element that we're struggling with right now um, in, in drama, in in classes, whether I'm teaching drama, whether I'm teaching indigenous studies or whatever Mm. is being able to hear, being able to hyper listen, but still can't hear what's going on. I'm an older guy now. Um, and maybe I'm losing a little bit of my, you know, high and low end stuff and I'm missing things. Some kids just talk quietly anyways, but it's, it's been a real challenge over the last couple of years to, to hear people clearly. 
And just as you mentioned that there's definitely the visual component of, of facial expression, body expression. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself when I'm in the grocery store and you know how you, you pass someone by and they're a friendly face. So you smile. <laughs> so I they smile, can't. but then I realize they can't see anything. So I'm like extra yeah. expressive. Your, your, your eyes have that extra, you know, <laughs> squint I'm, in them. I'm smizing. Yes. Yeah. You no, you're having to smile with your eyes. You know, I remember Steve Carell used to do this thing in talk shows where he'd laugh, but his eyes would be dead. <laughs> and it just, it, it just looked so strange because his eyes were dead. <laughs> so to speak. But yeah, that's definitely a big challenge for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, smiling at kids in the hallway and why is Mr. Miller staring at me? It's like, no, I'm smiling. Oh, never mind. You have resting mask face. Yes. Ha! <laughs> resting mask face. That's awesome. I'll have to remember that one. Just to my fellow staff <laughs> that- members. <laughs> that was my improv for the day. That's all. That's, that's all awesome. I got. Yes. And, okay. and, and scene. scene. <laughs> <laughs> So here is, I guess, my final question for you. Okay. I, if we're looking a little bit more broadly, if we zoom out for a second yeah. from improv and we're looking at listening and creativity more broadly, what role do you think listening plays in helping us to tap into our most creative selves on or off the theater stage? And, and I'll tie it maybe to that thing I said, said about no directing. Um, you know, there's an old expression, you know, um, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And, and I think that is where listening is, is whether that's connected to that metaphor or not, but the idea that um, the best idea is probably somewhere in between you and the person you're working with. Maybe it's more towards yours, maybe it's more towards them, but I think there are very, very, very few things that have ever been created in this world that were created in isolation, you know? Um, you listen to music and if you know enough music, you can hear influences that someone heard this and then modified it and turned into something new or maybe better. Or, you know, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs walked into the Apple thing and said, I want you to take this Walkman cassette tape thing about this big, shrink it down to here. And I want you to put 1200 songs on it, you know, and then it took a bunch of people working together, throwing ideas back and forth, killing some ideas, building on some restarting, you know, and trying to refigure, reconfigure and, and try to figure out. And, you know, that lone, lone voice in the back corner saying, uh, what about this? All of that stuff is, is, is playing all the time. And if you're not listening to each other, you're not willing to be humble um, to know that you aren't going to have all the answers uh, to know that um, someone else might have a better idea than you. If you're once again, going back to the rules of improv, making other people more important than you, um, if that's what you're willing to do, then you probably will end up with an incredible product at the end because it is a sharing of ideas and it's a building up and it's, it's you know, the scaffolding as opposed to just trying to throw something on top of the roof or whatever. You can actually build up and, and, and make some amazing things. Like I know you, you, you know, Bill Murray, right? The actor mm-hmm. Bill Murray. Yeah, he as, as amazing as he is and everybody knows him and he's like the, you know, top of the heap kind of guy. One of the quotes I use from him is the first thing we learned in improv is by making others look good, you look good. And that's been his philosophy his whole career. And it's done wonders for him and for the people he works with. And like I said, listen to each other, realize that maybe you don't have all the answers. Um, Hyper listening is is an expression they they use in improv. You know, like like I mentioned before, now that we can't see our lips moving, like you, you really have to hyper listen. 
Um, and, and remembering is also an important thing. It's not just the, the fact of listening and having the words come into your ears, but actually mm-hmm. taking them in, you know, remembering them. There's another improv rule. It's called listen, remember, remember, recycle, mm-hmm. like bringing things back in. If I walk into a scene and I call mm-hmm. you Jennifer, you have to remember your Jennifer for the rest right. of the scene, right? Um, I'm sure you've seen like Who's Line shows where the <laughs> a joke occurs at the first part of the show and it keeps returning and it gets funnier and funnier. And that's, that's the idea of recycling. Um, things can be brought in and built on. Um, you know, I have to remember things, like I said. Um, yeah. And it just, it's funny. Like I, I looked at all the questions you gave me and, you know, mused on them and, and still, even in the moment, just speaking things out and conversing with you, new ideas are popping into my head because like, Oh, that's a great point, Diana. I never thought about that. Um, and even in this moment now, the, the listening is, is paying off and, and, and demonstrating how important it is to, to pay attention. Yeah. And that's, that's an excellent answer, Tim Miller. Ooh, thank it's you still, very much. It's still weird calling you Tim, but we'll... It is. But yeah, but like you said, humility. Uh, uh, I wrote down a few words here. Humility, trust, acceptance of ideas and of people, and all of these pieces are only able to happen and a scene or a creative project and or anything in the world is only able to move ha- move forward if we are listening and collectively scaffolding ideas mm-hmm. because we're I don't ever want to be the smartest person in any room I'm in that's that's not a person I want to be because no, no. I always want to be listening and learning and growing and taking in and being inspired by etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think listening has such a, a huge role to play in that yeah, and if you've got this class full of rocket scientists and creatives and stuff like that, um, like it, as you were describing it to me, you know, that is like some people might find that intimidating. I, I think that is incredibly exciting mm-hmm. because each and every person is going to be able to contribute something to the conversation, to the process that no other one person ever thought about before. And um, only as the group will you get better. Well, I was just going to say, you know, McMaster University was one of the first medical universities that started letting in non-mathematical and scientific people. Like that was one of the first universities you could get a history degree and apply and you could potentially get in because they realized that medicine is not just about the numbers and, you know, the the amount of fibers in the muscle and there's so much more to it. And having this collective of a whole bunch of different experiences and knowledge actually made you a much better physician Mm -hmm. sorry you were going to say something after i talked about the collective no that's that's a great point and i was just going to say going back to your earlier comment that teaching drama one plus one never equals two i think that the maybe the the takeaway here is that one plus one equals three one plus one and you get something yeah. Even even right, even bigger than than kind of what what was possible without the the listening component. Yeah, and and it, I I you know I I use the one plus one equals three, but I also make sure they understand that that's still not the final answer, and that's not the only answer. Mm-hmm. It can be anything. You know, I I always mm-hmm. keep telling kids this is good art. That's good art. Not having why is that good art? Good art is not having the. You understand what I mean? No, okay, you, you know mean? that you know that you know dun 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 dun. dun. What's your first instinct? Dun dun. Good art just stops at the dun 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 dun. dun. Let you come up with the, the rest of it. Mm. That's good art. 
Got it. And that requires listening. That requires paying attention. That requires the ability to take a risk and, and, and go beyond yourself. And, you know, uh, it's like, you know, when a musician, someone comes up to me and says, oh my gosh, this song meant so much to me. It, it spoke to me about this and this and this. And the good musicians will go, I'm glad. That's awesome. Meanwhile, they're going, that's not what I wrote, but I'm glad this is what you got out of it. So that's that metaphor of the good art. And I was going to say that that for me has has rung true a number of times in in recent kind of weeks and, and months is that kind of we hear what we want to mm-hmm. hear in a given piece of music or in a given story or whatever. We read what we want to read. We uh, my students will learn what they want to learn from me and whether that's what I'm teaching them directly or indirectly by being in the classroom with them. I, I think yeah, that's such an interesting piece of this whole listening puzzle is that really it's important to listen, but also we take from a conversation or an interaction what we need to take out of it in that moment, Yeah, and, which is good or yeah, bad. Exactly, because it can be the bad thing is if you decide that you're a racist and regardless mm-hmm. of what someone says about, you know, racism being bad and that people are equal, you'll pick the one moment of the conversation where they may have said something, they're going to justify the way that you think and that's all you're going to take out of it. You know, definitely people who don't listen are, are those ones. I'm uh, one of the uh, course, sorry, this indigenous course I'm teaching. There's a, a series of TV shows called First Contact. And it's, you know, metaphor of European first contact with the indigenous. And basically they've taken five average Canadians with a variety of different opinions and understanding about the indigenous and then basically insert them into different, you know, reservations, different homes, different situations uh, across Canada um, that are indigenous, you know, Métis, First, uh, First Nations, and Inuit. And um, it's interesting, the people who are paying attention to what's going on, their hearts are being changed. Um, the mm. one, there's two gentlemen, one in particular, like there's nothing that anybody is saying that is going to change his mind. You know, even when this gentleman talked about being raped in, res- you know, in a residential school, his response was like, well, things happen kind of thing. And mm. like, he just won't listen. And that's sad for sure. Wow. Going from like funny jokes and dunta da duntas to that. Wow. What a change. Oh, sorry about <laughs> yeah, that. There's that's, that's okay. No, wow. but I think you're, you're, you're making an important yeah. point here is that, uh, yeah, is that listening is so incredibly important. And I think I, I read somewhere recently that, that changing one's mind is not like a moral failing that we had the wrong answer that, that like changing your mind is not a bad thing. Mm. When you hear new information, you process new information, it's a sign that you are growing and evolving and understanding the world more broadly around us. And I think the only way that all of that can happen is through listening. Yeah. And, and the, the, the element of humility has to happen there too. I remember once again, teaching this indigenous course, I was uh, interacting because I, I bring in indigenous people as much as I can, because I can only speak about indigeneity. I can't speak to it. It's like I, t- I could speak about being a Christian, but I can't speak about how it is being a Muslim. I can tell you what Muslims believe in, but I can't tell you what it's like to believe. Um, yes. So this indigenous woman had joined our class um, online. And um, um, one of the things I do with my students is I, I teach them basic, like, hello, um, in Ojibwe, uh, and, uh, which is the Métis language. Um, so we did that. And another thing, occasionally I would do this sort of morning greeting prayer, um, from the Ojibwe. This is a beautiful thing. And I, and I said, do you, is it okay if I take, you know, take us through this before we start talking? And she stopped me and said, only elders are supposed to do that. I'm going mm-hmm. like, 
oh, okay, I've been doing this for two months. So part of me is going like, mm-hmm. I feel bad about that. The, the, um, the arrogant part of me is like, my students are going to think I'm stupid. But then I chose to think to myself, well, you know what? I've learned something new and I'm not yeah. going to make that mistake again. And so I'm fine with it now. I've learned from it, sucked in the moment, but now I'm a whole lot better for it. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's, and, and that's, that's a piece of, vul- that's a vulnerable thing to have happened, but yeah. it's something that through listening and through ex- accepting and through growing and, and that's, that is, uh, as you say, an important kind of, you're, you're better for yeah. it. And when you model that for others, then yes. they, yes. they can start to go, okay, it's all right if I do this. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's important too, for sure. Yep. I agree. Thank you, Tim Miller. No problem, Diana Sharma. That Varma. 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 Sorry. <laughs> Damn. Something like that. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a real pleasure seeing you again. I mean, I can think the last time I saw you, we, uh, probably five or six years ago. No longer than that. Was it? Yeah. It was like 13 years ago, maybe. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But I, here's an interesting thing of, of how you influenced me is you introduced me to Unlearn. Ah, the Unlearn yes, brand. yes. And um, I've been a huge fan of them forever. And and they're, I don't know if you've been following them at all, but uh, they've gone way beyond t-shirts. Mm. Um, they're, they've got posters, they're doing, you know, courses, they're they're working in the schools. It's it's pretty amazing. So I, it's funny, every time I put on an Unlearn shirt or I see the Unlearn poster at our school, Diana Brown slash Pharma. <laughs> I'm <laughs> to my mind right away. Thank you, Tim. Real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, so proud of all you've done. You've done some amazing stuff, young lady. Thank like, you. Like, wow. That's very kind. The yes and framework is foundational in improv, and I believe it can also be transformative if we apply this accept and build philosophy to our everyday lives. Listening to the world around us is crucial, but listening to ourselves and specifically listening to the positive things we say about ourselves is just as important. This listening invitation encourages you to yes and your own work to encourage contentment. So it's human nature to want to improve ourselves. Feedback is an important part of the creative process. However, there comes a time when criticism about our work is no longer helpful or productive. It's at this point that we can choose contentment over judgment. So first, choose work that you've either completed recently or long ago. This could be any type of creative work, whether it's a painting or a piece of writing or anything in between. While there are always things that could be improved, I invite you to make one positive statement about your work. For example, you could say, I like my use of brush strokes. Or you could say, I like the color palette I chose. Or I really enjoy that turn of phrase that I used in this specific piece of writing. Whatever it is. Now say to yourself, yes and. Accept and build on your own positive feedback with another positive statement about your work. Keep yes-anding your piece of work until you've entirely exhausted all possible positive things to say, and then move on to another piece of work, repeating this process. Be kind, be gentle, and be generous with the compliments that you give yourself, knowing that this is an important step 
hearing your inherent value and your worth. Focusing on the yes ands in your work, listening to the positive things you have to say about yourself, has powerful and compounding effects.